Good morning, and welcome to Take Me to Your Reader, where we talk about adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I am your second host, Colin, and today I'm joined by... Seth. James. And our ongoing uh, guest and friend of the show... Oh, Phil. (laughs) Today we will be talking about an H.G. Wells short story, The Crystal Egg, from the 19... from the 1897 edition of the New Review by H.G. Wells, and two of its adaptations, one from 1951 from Tales of Tomorrow. (laughs) And the second adaptation is a little more recent, Last Night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And this is why Phil is joining us. In addition to his, his work with the Bradbury Society and Bradbury Media, he also is part of a group of performers. So we'll be learning about that group and the process of adaptation. Cool. We should mention that the Crystal Egg is available in the public domain. So if you want to read the story, it doesn't take very long. You can read it on your phone. You can read it on anything. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. We can put a link in the show notes to that for our listeners? We we can. Perhaps several. Ooh. Listeners or show notes? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Carry on. I think you have some... What order do we want to go in? I mean, we have Phil here, so we should talk about the... I guess we could briefly talk about the earlier adaptation. Or we could talk about the story. Let's talk about the story. I'll just shut up and let you lead. So, so (laughs) Phil, you are probably more familiar with this story than either of the three of us. Can you tell us a little Uh bit about it and its history? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't have the the facts in front of me, but from memory, I think the story was from 1897, I think you just said? Yes. Yep. And that happened to be... I think, the same year that The War of the Worlds was published, which, of course, was H.G. Wells's big breakthrough. And The War of the Worlds is about Martians coming to Earth. And this story, The Crystal Egg, is kind of a precursor to that, although he published them both in the same year. I don't know which one was written first. Maybe The Crystal Egg was an old thing that he had lying around. I really don't know. But, um, yeah, they're both sort of related to each other. Um, Other than that, all I would say about The Crystal Egg as a story is when you read it, it's a very quirky little thing, and it's not really science fiction. It's got some scientific jargon in there, but it's basically magic. It's a magic egg is what it is that lets you talk. Well, it doesn't let you talk. It lets you view View, alien creatures in a distant world, which we think is Mars. Yeah. Did Tolkien uh, steal that idea for the seeing stones? <laughs> oh, the Palantir? Yeah. I don't know. Could okay. be a knot. Never yeah. know. Yeah. You're driving. I'm driving. <laughs> I'm not used to driving. <laughs> um, so, Phil, you are part of a small group of online performers, and, and their name is? Planet Zoom Players. The Planet Zoom Players. And it's a very remote group, international. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think all of the people in the performance that we're reviewing today, uh, all of them except me, are in the US, but in different parts. I mean, there's at least one person in Arizona, at least one person in Chicago, I think. One maybe in New York. I I can't remember exactly who lived where. Uh, I'm the only person from outside uh, the US. But in our earlier stages when we were rehearsing, we did have contributors from, from elsewhere as well. So we had another person who I think was British uh, by birth, but who lived in Spain. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're sort of all over the place geographically, and we perform over Zoom 
hence the Zoom in the title, Planet Zoom Players. So how long has this group been a thing? Uh, it predates my membership of the group. Um, I, th I think they probably started about two or three years ago. Okay. And I joined it this year and uh, took part in this second production. So they'd only done one before this, uh, and this is the first one that I've been involved with. I think it it adds a certain legitimacy to it to have an Englishman <laughs> being the narrator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that happened simply because I volunteered to do it, mm -hmm. because I, I wasn't totally confident that I would be able to perform the characters. So I thought I'd, I'd better volunteer to do something mundane. But of course, it turns out that the uh, narrator has more lines than yeah. anybody else. <laughs> so I really shot myself in the foot there. Yeah. Um, but I, I can let you into a little secret. My bit was pre-recorded. Everyone else performed, um, what's the word? Uh, not, not live. I mean, it was live, but um, they were all performing at the same time. Mm, okay. Whereas my part was pre-recorded because I was also doing the technical stuff, uh, which involved pushing buttons and making sure the visuals came in at the right time and all of that. Uh, so because I was really bogged down with button pushing, I decided I ought to record my narration. So whenever you hear me speak, that's simply because I've pressed a button nice. that plays back a, a burst of audio from me. It's a different kind of performing. Colin does tech at our church, yeah. you know. It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a crucial piece. So. It's the style with which you press the buttons that really matters. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> with, a, with a flourish. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so there was no post-production on this? I, I had figured that the animatic and the sound effects were added in uh, afterwards, but... No, it, it was actually performed live. Um, if, if people have seen it, um, they will know that it's essentially a radio play with pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. If you haven't seen it, it's essentially a radio play with pictures. Um, <laughs> but we did perform it live. We did it over Zoom. Uh, all, of the image, all of the images which come up on the screen, some still images, some moving images, all of them are triggered in the moment by me. We recorded that. But there was some post-production. Mainly that was to fix problems with Zoom. Because mm -hmm. as you know, when you're doing stuff remotely online, you will get glitches. Yeah. And what we did on the day of the actual performance, we did two performances in a row and recorded both of those over Zoom. I also had recordings of the rehearsal from the previous week. And that turned out to be a lifesaver. <laughs> because uh, I, I said to the group, when we do it, let's perform it twice, because if any glitches occur in the second recording, it's very unlikely that we'll have the same glitch at the same time in the first recording. And it turned out that was completely wrong. We actually had <laughs> oh some gosh. glitches occurred in exactly the same place wow. every time. So fortunately, I had, I had a rehearsal recording from the previous week, so I was able to lift sometimes just a word or even just a fraction of a word, oh, wow. fly it in from one recording and drop it into the next. I've, I've done the same thing with my Zencaster audio and the digital recorder backup at times, where something, something has gone slightly amiss on yeah. one or the other. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And just copy and paste. <laughs> mm -hmm. It, this reminds me of kind of uh, the Disney Plus Hamilton, right? The movie version of Hamilton where, where they recorded a live session of it, but they also recorded it at a different time with, uh, with all the camera fly-throughs and that kind of stuff. 
and then they uh, mixed it all together. I didn't Interesting. realize that. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, having a camera, f- camera fly through a scene is very distracting to actors and dancers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I have to say, we didn't use any cameras. <laughs> right. We didn't use any fly-throughs. <laughs> all of our images are, uh, shall we say, fabricated. Yeah, so you uh, used all of your digital arts to produce these. Uh, all of my personal digital arts, yeah, um, which aren't many. Um, I I used a lot of Photoshop. I used um, quite a few archive images. So some of the characters that you see are real people. Well, actually, no, one of the characters you see is a real person. It's a photo of a real person, although his body may not be his real body. I can't remember now. <laughs> um, what I generally did, <laughs> what, I, what I started with was photos of real Victorian people. And you then get the problem that somewhere in the script it says, uh, he sits down. And you think, oh, God, I've only got a photo of him standing up. So what am I going to do? <laughs> so you go looking for a photo of somebody else sit- sitting down, and then you take the head off the standing up person and copy it onto the body <laughs> of the sitting down person. Um, so the character of Mr. Wace in the play, he's that's a real photo of a real person. Um, and you may I don't know if you noticed this, but sometimes I have him looking in the opposite direction and all I've done is I've just flopped the image over mm-hmm. so he, oh, he has precisely two two ways of appearing one is looking left and one is looking right and that's all he does mm-hmm. um, some of the others were produced by Dali which is a, an AI imaging program and it does various things but the, the most useful thing it does it turns a description a text description into an image. So if you say, for example, uh, close up of a Victorian gentleman who is very old, something like that, it will then give you typically four images that it thinks represents what you've just asked for. Now, those four images will be rubbish. So <laughs> you then you reword the, the expression and then it'll give you another four. And I find if you do this 20 times, maybe you might get one or two images that are usable. <laughs> but what I found in creating people is Dali doesn't know how to do eyes. It will give you, um, if you say a close up of a person, it will give you a close up. But then when you look at the eyes, you realize that one is looking down and the other's looking up or one eye is bigger than the other it's really terrible i i have some i have seen some freaky ar ai art where the where the eyes are the problem yeah yeah it it seems to be a huge problem with zali so what i had to do then is use my photoshop skills to uh manipulate the eyes so mr cave had one good eye and one eye that was pointing off in a totally wayward direction so i Mm. copied his left eye flipped it over and pasted it in in place of his in place of his right eye and had to tweak the size of it and so on but there's one character there's a character in there who's called the tradesman uh, sort of a quirky character who, who appears with the top hat and he's got sort of one eye bigger than another and one is higher than the other Uh, and I thought <laughs> that one actually looked quite quirky and suited the character. So I left that one as it was. <laughs> but some of the others I had to uh, tweak to get better. You know, through my work, I hear a lot about AI art. And most mm. of the ones that that I've heard about have been with odd hands or feet. 
Mm. Oh yeah, like the six fingered hands. Yeah, six, yeah. seven fingered hands. <laughs> yes. uh, people with legs, but just not attached to the right places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, f- <laughs> funny you mention that because Mrs. Cave in one of the shots here, I think, I think she's got twelve fingers. Oh, uh, oh boy! But she's she's got her two hands together, and she's wearing gloves. So it's possible that we might be seeing sort of ten fingers plus some extra glove fingers or something. Hmm. But no, she had too many fingers, but I couldn't fix it. So I left it and hope nobody noticed. <laughs> Hopefully Enigo Montoya wasn't uh, watching. <laughs> That's right. He'd, he'd be after her. Well, and it could explain why she married such an elderly shopkeeper instead of a more promising right. younger prospector. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the sound effects. Are you a theremin performer mm-hmm. or are you good at, at mining the public domain archives? Uh, the latter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't make the theremin. Uh, somebody handed that to me as a sort of a fait accompli. Um, There is a credit at the end that says where the theremin came from. I can't remember where it was now, but it was just a found sound. The other things is sort of BBC sound effects, which are free to use if you're not using it for commercial purposes. Can't remember what else there was. Oh, there was a sort of a, um, I don't know what it was, sort of a a throbbing noise or something that appears when the crystal egg um, comes to life. And I right. honestly can't remember where I got that from, but I mostly found things. I could, I was prepared to synthesize some sounds if I needed to, but um, actually the need didn't arise. And the music uh, was public domain as well. So just sort of pieced together from all over the place, really. Well, and I, I thought it turned out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is oh, Was The Martian you. also a Dolly creation or? Uh, no, actually... Most of the Martians that you see were created by Gloria, who's the director of the piece. Um, and she created those. Well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure what she used. She might have used GIMP uh, or maybe even just Microsoft Paint uh, to create those. And then she animated them in PowerPoint because you can take an object oh. and draw a path for it to follow. So those are the sort of background creatures the the main martian the one that sort of zooms up to the camera and blinks its eyes mm-hmm. uh, that is taken from amazing stories i'm going to guess the year i think it was 1926 one mm. of the early oh, issues cool. of uh, amazing stories magazine reprinted the hg well story and frank r paul who is one of the sort of iconic illustrators from pulp magazines uh, he did a cover, a full-color cover for the magazine with, I think it shows one Martian sort of landing on an egg. Uh, so I, I took that and photoshopped it, did a little bit of manipulation to it, but not much, actually. And so that's the main Martian that you see. I call, I call that the classic Martian, although <laughs> it's not like a Martian you would ever see in a movie. It's more like a right. bat or a, a mosquito <laughs> or something. So how long, Phil, did the whole process take from, you know, some, someone had to write the script for it, right? And then, mm-hmm. and then there's yeah. all the animation that was done and the recording and post-production. Yeah. I'm guessing, because I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was probably about two or three months. Hmm. Because at first we were meeting to rehearse and we didn't do it very often, maybe once every three weeks or once every two weeks. And as we got closer to the performance date, uh, we started doing rehearsals more often. But what we found in the rehearsals is because we're all just 
doing this on a purely amateur basis, a purely voluntary basis, people couldn't always make it to the rehearsals. So we, mm -hmm. we were forever performing somebody else's role because <laughs> they weren't able to make it that week. So the rehearsals weren't hugely useful to us, I don't think, uh, except in allowing us to, simply through repetition, becoming more and more familiar with what the characters were motivated by. So the whole process took several months and from the visual point of view it was a, simply a case of each time we met I would bring some more images not because anyone asked me to but because I thought well we need something to illustrate something in the story and at first it was going to be us appearing on screen um, but in one of the rehearsals somebody said this isn't working because nobody's going to want to watch this you know, <laughs> loads of people just looking down at a piece of paper not even making eye contact with the camera right. um, so from that point on we decided that we would have the camera switched off so then <laughs> i start thinking this is boring as well so let's bring it to life so i, I simply started adding more and more images and it was just how many images did I have time to create, basically. Yeah. And because we did it over about three months, I was able to generate quite a lot uh, of stuff yeah. to, to bring it to life. Yeah. It reminds me of a, I think they call them motion comics, where, mm -hmm. where it's, a, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a comic yeah. with narration over it, and then it just kind of moves across right, the page. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me think. This is 2023, which means... 12 years ago, I backed a Kickstarter. So uh, this this fan of Neil Gaiman's wants to make an adaptation of his short story, The Price. Mm. And so he made an animatic, which is, I think, similar to a motion comic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this production yeah. really reminded me of that, although it has a, a multi-person cast versus a, a narrator reading the entire book. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, and he still posts updates. And so it's still forthcoming. So when people complain <laughs> wow. about the delays in their Kickstarter backing, I tell them they have nothing to complain about. <laughs> it's five years away as it has been for the last 12 years. Yes. Right. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought of this as an animatic, but that, that is really what it is. It, um, it's the kind of thing you would do if you were planning to produce a full animation and you just create the animatic as a way of representing individual scenes. Um, but I, because I put little bits of motion in there where I could or where it seemed useful to have motion, it becomes a little bit more than an illustrated story. Uh, but it, obviously, it's not full animation by any means. So, yeah, animatic is really a good description for yeah. it. Eligible for the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation short form for next year. So. <laughs> oh, you know someone that can make that nomination by chance? I do. Oh, hey. I don't think I've ever nominated anything for short form. I know I probably have. Now, had you been familiar with this story before you joined the players? Yes, but I, uh, I didn't remember it particularly. Uh, I do have a book just on the shelf just over there where you can't see it, but just over there I've got the complete short stories of H.G. Wells. And although I haven't read all of them, I've dipped into it over the years. And I, I do remember having read that one, but I couldn't remember what it was about. So I was going purely from the script, which Gloria, Gloria Macmillan was the writer and director of the play. Um, so I was just going from her script. And I think I dipped back into the story just to... There was a reference in the script to these, these masts or towers on Mars. And 
I, I was trying to decide, is it a mast like a radio mast or is it a mast like a you put a flag on the top of? I was trying to decide what, what would H.G. Wells be referring to and he couldn't be referring to a radio mast because they didn't have them in 1897. <laughs> but I was just a bit curious. So I, I remember dipping back into the story probably about six weeks ago just to see what he was getting at. Um and so some part of his description of the Martian landscape is reflected a little bit in the imagery that I created. Mm. But apart from that, I didn't reread the story. I just worked from, um, from Gloria's script. And I, only after I finished did I go and reread the story. And I discovered all sorts of things were different. Mm -hmm. I, th I think this is interesting from the point of view of adaptation and, and what your podcast is all about. You know, why, why do things change? Right. Why do we have to change things when we go from um, story to film? And in this instance, there's a huge element of Chinese whispers going on. Obviously, Gloria read the story. She turned it into a script. The script then comes to me and I start interpreting the script, but I don't go to the original story. And so you get a Chinese whispers thing going on. So I'm, I, I've just got a couple of notes here. I, th um, I think we call that a game of telephone. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I, when I look back at the story just a couple of days ago, uh, I see in the story there's a lot of business going on uh, where Mr. Cave and these two people who've come into the shop are haggling over the price of the egg. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants five pounds. They don't want to pay five pounds. Mrs. Cave is looking through a blind at them, sort of ov overseeing this transaction and getting very cross, very irate. And none of that's in the script because it doesn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, there's lots of detail in the story about the, the sort of optics of the egg, how there has to be I can't remember what it says, something like a, just a millimetre shaft of light coming into the egg is enough to trigger it. And mm -hmm. Mr. Cave uh, sort of puts a dark cloth over himself and over the egg to sort of keep right. out stray light and that kind of stuff. None of that's in the script. So in the script and in the animatic, you just see Mr. Cave holding the egg in his hand. Um, and that seems to me... That was all that was required, but I was going by what was in the script. If I'd gone back to the story, I might have been tempted to make those visuals more complicated than they need to be. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a difference between words which are delivered on the page and words which you hear through the air. So some, some of the story is unnecessarily complicated in terms of the detail that Wells puts in. But that's because he's expecting you to be reading the, the words off the page. And if you misunderstood something, you'd just go back. You reread a sentence or a paragraph. And I don't know about you, but I do that all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm always saying, who's yeah. this character? I'll just go back a few pages. Oh, yeah, I remember now. But of course, if somebody is orally telling a story to you, you don't have that luxury. So stories are always simplified for this sort of oral delivery, it seems to me. Um, but I, I think I, even though I, I know a fair bit about adaptation and I've taught adaptation and I've written papers on adaptation, I think I've learned some things about the, the practical craft of adaptation from doing this very simple little piece. Hmm. I, I noticed one thing was that the in the story, 
cave kind of already knows about the egg and is reluctant to to sell it. Yes. But he hasn't yeah. discovered the nature of it, where, where in this, it's more like it's a fresh discovery for him. Yes. Yes. Now, I think that is a good move because I think dramatically you want to see a thing happening. Yeah. I think the moment of discovery is inherently a dramatic thing. And in the story, there isn't the moment of discovery. It's sort of some of it is, or as you say, is already known. I think Wells gets some mileage out of um, Cave talking to Wace. And Wace, um, in the story, is a young investigator, a young scientist. And he's, so he brings his scientific curiosity to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what Wells is able to do is um, not necessarily have the initial moment of discovery, but there's something of a sharing of the experience between Cave and Wace. Mm-hmm. Now, in the play, uh, what we do is we have Mr. Cave saying, oh, what's this? And he holds the, the egg up to the light. And it comes to life. So we, we actually see the moment of discovery. And then we see him sharing that um, with Waste. But Waste is much more of a bystander. He's not really a scientific investigator. And incidentally, because the script didn't say how old Waste was, I just assumed he was sort of a middle-aged man. So oh. I went looking for a Victorian <laughs> gentleman with a, a full beard. <laughs> Only when I looked back at the story afterwards did I see that Mr. Wace is supposed to be a young scientific investigator, but it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't change mm-hmm. the nature of the story, right. but that's just another example of the, the Chinese whispers thing. Yep. Yep. I have to admit that there was, um, there was something that I picked up in the, in the film that I had not noticed in the story. And that was the, the tie-in to the war of the worlds. Um, because when it's on screen there and it shows that leg go across uh, the, the, the screen, I, I went, oh, wow, okay, they turned it into a, a prequel for uh, for War of the Worlds. And then I went back and read the story, and I was disappointed that you didn't make a change um, <laughs> to add that. Um, but it was just something that the, the story kind of describes it as an insect-like leg, and, and it, it washed right over me. I didn't realize that it was metallic and that it was possibly a tripod. So yeah, yeah, I th- I think that's um, just something that um, Gloria invented for the play uh, to to directly tie the two together. Mm-hmm. So we had this sense that the the two pieces probably were connected because they were yeah. written in the same year. But um, she really wanted to emphasise this as being a um, almost like a prequel mm-hmm. to the War of the Worlds. And in some ways, to be honest, that's a a good marketing ploy yeah you know whether the story um and the novel are connected doesn't really matter but if we can say hey you know that war of the worlds that everybody knows well look here (laughs) there's this this little prequel to it yeah so but it was yeah it was my idea to um have the 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 tripod legs of the Martian on the screen, because there are actually three legs that go swinging across the screen. Mm -hmm. I I didn't have the um, Photoshop skills to make them fully match Mr. Cave's description. So I thought I'll make them shadowy and I'll put a clunking metal sound on because he says uh, he saw this. I think he said, uh, I think it was alive and I think it was metallic or something like that. Um, So I, I couldn't quite make the legs look metallic, so I decided to just do them in silhouette. Mm-hmm. And then I added the mechanical clanking sound. 
Yeah. And, and I can't remember where that came from, but it was from a BBC sound effect. I sort of looked at factory oh. noises and all sorts of things. And it's actually a combination of two or three sounds cut together. Um, my, my attempt to be, what's his name? Is it Ben Burt, the person who did the uh, lightsaber sound effect for the original Star Wars? Mm. <laughs> You're just adding Foley artists to your list right. of uh, <laughs> yep, yeah, you production go. skills. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the, the yeah. T-Rex from Jurassic Park. It's like a conglomeration of like an elephant and a whale and like yes. 10 different animals mm -hmm. all to get that. Yeah. Yeah, a composite sound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I like that tie-in with The War of the Worlds just because, you know, the way that book starts is it, it indicates that across the gulf of space you have this other intelligence slowly drafting their plans and observing us. And this is obviously yeah. one way they could have observed us. Indeed. Indeed. Does yeah. this mean that I mean, we'll it, be getting a Planet Zoom player performance of uh, another H.G. Wells work in the near future? Um, We haven't discussed. We haven't particularly discussed that, no. I mean, wh what we have discussed is possibly doing an early Bradbury story. Ooh. And that wasn't it wasn't me. I didn't bring that idea, even though obviously <laughs> I would be keen to do that. We believe you, Phil. Um, <laughs> so we've been looking at public domain Bradbury stories, of which there are maybe 10 or a dozen stories. They're not particularly great stories, um, and that's why they slipped into the public domain. They weren't stories that Bradbury cared to, uh, you know, renew the copyright of. And we've talked about some other possibilities as well. We haven't talked about Wells in particular, so there are no plans. But uh, we might do, um, especially if this gets thousands of views. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the other adaptation that I mentioned was from 1951, 51, Tales yeah. of Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find it on the internet archive of all places. And it it adapts, it made quite a few changes to the adaptation. Yes. Um, there is someone actively trying to suppress knowledge about the egg. And it modernizes it, right? Because the guy's recording his thoughts onto a record. Oh, yeah. And so, really. so yeah, it had to, it had to be, it brought it up to essentially the, the same era and is not in England as far as I can tell. No. Um, the, the other thing is, Cave isn't the one even doing the investigations of the egg. Instead, it's the, the Wace character, who in this case is called Professor Vanek. Yes. Who's played by Thomas Mitchell, who was Uncle Billy in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, the guy who lost the money that Mr. Potter oh. stole. But yeah, and, and like you said, more changes to it. And as I was watching the, the uh, Zoom players, uh, adaptation. I was I was thinking, oh, this it would be an interesting story to update into like a modern Twilight Zone kind of way. And I didn't realize it had already been updated into a quote modern Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone kind of thing <laughs> a long time ago. I wish we still had like every science fiction anthology series that ever existed oh, yeah. uh, available to watch because there's so many of them and some out of the unknown and and so many of the the ones that were broadcast in the UK and then taped over and never seen again. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'd use time travel for. <laughs> to preserve old recordings <laughs> yeah. of BBC science fiction? That works for me. <laughs> or to just tell them, just, just buy another tape. Just bring the tape with you. Update yeah. there, update there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, Professor, or no, Professor Cave. Cave in this one ends up uh, dying of violence, not of, of some euphoric vision that he gets in the oh. egg. Right, he's killed oh. and the egg is taken. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and then, and like you said, there's an active suppression of it, who, which must mm. be the Martian sleeper agents or something <laughs> on Earth, because Vanek is recording 
all all of his stuff because he's he's going to the press and trying to to say hey or, or put put an ad out to uh, to try and find the egg mm-hmm. and the person at the paper is like people are going to think you're crazy um yes. and he he name drops galileo and and uh who was it uh, with the microscope i can't remember um and she says to him yes but they had the telescope other other people could look through it. They had the microscope. Other people could look through it. You don't have the egg, so people are going to think you're a crackpot. So he's kind of written off, and he records his thoughts on the record. And then there's gunshots, <laughs> and somebody comes in and breaks the record. Yeah, they pick the record off yeah. the recorder, and yeah, smash. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. conspiracies. That is so far removed from the story. <laughs> yeah, that it it makes you wonder what what's the motivation for taking a story and then turning it into something else. It, it's, a, it's a very Elon Musk thing to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I posted something about this on Facebook the other day. Why would you buy a thing only to change it? <laughs> it just seems yeah. crazy. Well, I mean, it keeps the core of the story. It changes some of the characters, right? There's still the crystal egg in the store that someone wants to buy that yeah. they, they don't don't sell and and take and look through it and see the vistas that you see um, a, a very, very 1950s alien looking back at them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it adds on that element of paranoia. And I think it may have been just uh, the United States in the 50s, Red Scare kind of stuff. I mean, that oh. that usually suffices for any paranoia that you want to put into to anything, like um, the original The Thing, right, with uh, the, uh, the story, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm-hmm. You know, he's being he's being... The, the government is trying to suppress him and capture him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if it uh, means it was the Martians or maybe it's the uh, Martian fifth column or something on Earth. You know. It's, uh... <laughs> yes. They're employing agents with the promise that when the invasion comes, they shall be spared. Yes. I, for one, welcome our new Martian overlords. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was just looking at the credits for uh, Tales of Tomorrow because I know that there were some decent writers on that series, but. Uh, it just says written by H.G. Wells. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Mal Goldberg, uh, who I do not know. So I'm just looking them up to see what they did. Mal Goldberg also wrote Hang 'em High, oh, episodes of Hawaii Five O, and The Big Valley. So not, not exactly a science fiction person. Hmm. Yeah, maybe they were more comfortable thinking about, you know, a hard boiled detective story or a thriller or. Yeah. 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 So Tales of Tomorrow is, is fun and. Uh, Obviously, it's a it's a different take on it than the the Zoom players version of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also in black and white. Yes, just like ours. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now you can feel free to edit this part out, but Phil, did you know at several places that um, Mr. Cave's mustache turns green? <laughs> yeah, it, actually, it doesn't turn green. It is green. Oh, it's just that most of the, most of the time it, it goes to black and white, so you don't see it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It is a bit green, and uh, yeah, I should have I should have photoshopped it to make it less green. <laughs> this is Dali, you see. It, oh. uh, mm-hmm. I didn't say give him a grey moustache, so it just assumed yeah. I wanted a green one. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone does. Maybe he's a Venusian, right? right. A Venusian uh, maybe, living on Earth, maybe. remotely viewing Mars through a contraband crystal. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> 
Actually, I think I know how that green got in there. I'm just going to let you into a little secret here. Almost everything you see in the crystal egg is composited. So it's it's not that I asked Dali to give me an image of Mr. Cave in Mr. Cave shop. I got the image of the shop as one item. I got Mr. Cave as a separate item. I, I got his head as a separate item because I wanted to be able to put that head onto different bodies at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I discovered um, through experimentation was that really what you have to do is treat each of these elements separately. And so whenever I was creating a human uh, in Dali, I would always tell it to give it to me against a plain green background so that I could relatively easily just remove the green. So it's green screen, basically. Mm. <laughs> it's digital green screen. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, Dali accidentally put a bit of green into the character as well as into the background. <laughs> but because I was working mostly in black and white, I didn't notice until I did the color scenes. <laughs> and then I thought, is anyone going to be bothered by this? <laughs> no, nobody will mind. <laughs> But yeah, it's the first thing people say. Oh, he's got a green mustache. Oh, yep. <laughs> green Martians, you know. I figured yep. maybe he was just turning Martian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, should we do a, a, a ranking and a wrap up then? Oh, I don't think we need to necessarily do a ranking. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're oh, I think different. you should. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> I, I will say something positive about the about the 1951. You know, despite all the changes, which of course. I'm completely okay with. Um, uh, the, Thomas Mitchell is a good actor, and I, I liked his performance in it. I thought it was strange to to though take the main role away from Cave because it was more the, the story was more about Cave and Wace kind of analyzing this thing, but Cave was the one normally. I guess I guess he was leaving the egg with Wace, right? So it wasn't in the shop, right? And he dies, and so you know mm-hmm. the Wace character, the Vasset character continues on the story after him so maybe it simplifies it by making him the forefront character mm-hmm. yeah but it is an odd choice to have it be a paranoia thriller <laughs> yeah hmm. it, it is a, a clumsy structure in the original story because you know we be, we begin with mr cave we're very much focused on him and then he dies so somebody else has to sort of carry on the story but what what saves the short story is that it is clearly being narrated by a person it's not just a, right. a, a disembodied narration. Mm-hmm. It, right. I, I think the, the narrator refers to himself as I. Um, so you are you are aware that there is another character who is actually telling the, the, the entire story. Um, it's difficult to do that in a drama unless you have a narrator. Um, but from a dramatic point of view, it's sort of easier not to have a narrator. And then you've got that issue of, well, the main character dies. So what are we going to do? I'll tell mm. you what, let's make somebody else the main character. So I understand why that would have been done. Um, but it does change the, the nature of the story. And then they piled on loads of other changes as well, which yeah. makes it, what's the point? <laughs> why, why, why not just write something original? Uh, so I'll, I'll try a first ranking. Uh, I, I kind of like the animatic best. All right. <laughs> reading H.G. Wells's and, and other older pieces, like I'm also reading Dracula right now, uh, is hard because of the language, and it spends so much time on things which don't seem to matter very much. And so the, the animatic boils all that down. Um, Phil mentioned, you know, you have to be careful which words you use because you can't 
although we can digitally rewind now, but on a live performance, you can't do that. Yeah. And that's the right. consideration taking. So it's, it's well explained. It's well illustrated. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. The, my second favorite would be the short, original short story. And then I'm not a big fan of the tales of tomorrow piece. So I would say third. Nice. You didn't watch tales of tomorrow. I did not watch tales. Slacker. But I did watch the, uh, what do we call it? Animatronic? No. <laughs> animatronic. Animatic. <laughs> animatic. <laughs> I enjoyed the animatic, yes. I liked, I don't think I've ever actually seen it like this before, so it was neat to see that adaptation and what you guys did with it. And I was I didn't I didn't really know what to expect going into it, so it was kinda cool. It was yeah. it was neat. I liked it. I think I liked it for the start, probably the same reason Colin did better than the short story. Yeah, I I agree. The the it it boiled it down in a nice way, um, and and I completely agree with Colin that there some some Victorian prose is is just yeah it's a lot um, torturous yeah and, and in a short story it's not so bad right in something like I've I've read the War of the Worlds I've read the Time Machine and they're brief books that read a lot longer and um, so something like this that kind of brings out and and emphasize something that I hadn't really. Pain, paid much attention to uh, in the story, so I I thought that was skillfully done and and a good choice to uh, explicitly tie it into War of the Worlds. I like to tie in. I, yeah. I think it's still something <laughs> someone could miss if they weren't familiar with H.G. Wells, but um, mm-hmm. so it's somewhere above an Easter egg. It's it's a reference, <laughs> you know. Um, and yeah, I approved of that, and I still like the 1951. But I I would I would probably go animatic story 1951 uh, Tales of Tomorrow. Wow. I'm flattered. So well done is what we're saying. <laughs> yes, it's a full pavement pounder endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I give my ranking? Yes. Uh, for me, the story wins uh, because it's just more. It's got much more detail in it. Yes, and it therefore feels as if it's describing a world, not just a series of events. So I think I prefer the short story of all. Um, having said that, I don't think it's Wells's best short story by any means. There's plenty others that are much, much better. And I don't really know. It, to be honest, it feels like a first draft to me um, because the, the story doesn't really have a sense of direction to it. It just sort of unfolds and unfurls as it goes through. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's it's more detailed than what we were able to achieve. Um, and I think I would put our animatic thing in second place and Tales of Tomorrow in third place because most of Tales of Tomorrow is, I mean, other other episodes that they did, a bit um, oversimplified usually mm. and often just taking place. I can't remember with this one because it's a while since I've seen it, but often taking place in a single location or maybe just two rooms simply because they were working mm. in a very small TV studio and it's done live. Yeah. So, you know, you've got three cameras and you've got to move them. <laughs> you've got them in one, <laughs> one room and then you have to move one of the cameras to the other room ready for the action to take place in the other location. So there's a dance of the cameras that goes on. But uh, yeah. so Tales of a Tomorrow was a little bit clunky in many respects. Well, I bet for the time it was, you know, uh, like like par for the course, what people expected and were used to. Yeah. Sure. But I compared so. to what we have yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Nice. Well, Phil, you'll have to keep us posted, probably through Colin, uh, on uh, if, if more of these things uh, are done in the future. And I, I presume they would typically be science fiction. 
Yeah, I mean, that's really sort of our reason for existence is to do science fiction. Cool. Um, other than that, there is no particular remit. I mean, whether we would do another visual piece like this, I don't know. We might just do a straightforward reading next time. Hmm. So this isn't necessarily the house style. This is just the style we used for this particular one. Okay. Uh, but having said that, if it's popular, you know, we might we yeah. might do some more in this in the same vein. Well, we'll make sure to put out links to where your people can find the story, where people can find Tales of Tomorrow if they want to watch that, and where people can find the Tucson Hard Science SF, what was it? YouTube page. Channel. YouTube page. No, channel. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks Thanks for letting me come on and talk about this. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and before you go, I, I can't remember if since last time we recorded was Rendezvous with Rama, right? Were you guys already doing Science Fiction 101 at that point? I think you were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 Just wanted to make sure that uh, that if, if anybody's listening to us and they don't listen to Science Fiction 101 yet, make sure you do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can hear Phil on Science Fiction 101, mm -hmm. on Bradbury 101 and 102. Right. And no, 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 no. bradburymedia.co.uk. Is that the right URL off the top of my head? Uh, I think so. That sounded right. There's there's no Bradbury 102. You, you've gone one too high. Oh, dear. There's Bradbury 100, <laughs> which is an audio podcast. And there's Bradbury 101, which is a uh, YouTube series. Nice. But there's no 102. But you've given me <laughs> a new idea now. Uh, yet. <laughs> <laughs> Do we do the normal sign-off? Yeah, will you give us a sign-off, please, Seth? I mean, you're hosting this one. Ah. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm always, you know, I'm always tempted to mess with him like I did back in the day. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, may the road rise up to meet you, and may you never sell your crystal egg. <laughs> nice. Hide it at a friend's house. It always works out. <laughs> in a sack, in a cabinet. In a, yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Cool.